Hello, my name is Michelle Yanachan, the wandering book collector, and this is my podcast, conversations with writers exploring what's informed their books and their lives around themes of movement, memory, sense of place, borders, identity, belonging, and home. The Wandering Book Collector podcast is supported by Abercrombie & Kent, Toomey, and Ultimate Library. I'm joined by the inimitable travel writer Horatio Clare, whose work also encompasses memoir, stories of nature, and children's literature. His latest book has stayed with me well beyond the last page, Heavy Light, a journey through madness, mania, and healing. It recounts Horatio's personal breakdown, his sectioning, his psychiatric treatment, and his recovery. It's a book, somehow, full of hope. Horatio's a prolific writer with 13 books behind him. Astoundingly, I noticed he published three in 2017. How on earth did he do that? I can't think of anything much I did that year. Hopefully, he'll tell me the secret later. His first book was Running for the Hills on his childhood, growing up on a sheep farm in South Wales. Then the novella Truant, Notes from the Slippery Slope on his drug addictions, depression, mania, psychosis, perhaps a precursor to heavy light. I cannot name them all here, but his nature writing includes A Single Swallow, which I adore, following the journey of these birds from South Africa's Cape to a branch of a tree in Wales and telegraph wires in Dorset. There's also Down to the Sea in Ships and Icebreaker, A Voyage Far North, stories of time at sea, passages across the fastness of our oceans. Horatio, welcome. Michelle, thank you for having me. Heavy Light is well-named. It's both. You make me laugh and then you punch me in the gut and then you make me want to hold you. I hope that doesn't sound patronising. Um, it was a very different kind of journey to the one you usually take as a travel writer, but the comparison is irresistible. A trip to a strange, remote place with its own sets of hazards and dangers. Is that right? Yeah, about halfway through when I, so I had a breakdown and then I received treatment. Um, and during the treatment, so being sectioned, essentially, uh, I thought it's just a travel job. If you treat it that way, that's OK, um, because, you know, those things can be, as you know, full of incident and reversal and things going wrong. Uh, and on a journey, when things go wrong, I, I tend to sort of perk up, really. I quite like it when, you know, the wheel comes off or the plane is missed, um, because then you break into something perhaps more authentic and more telling uh and on this one um it was the things going wrong that, that, that was the story really and then um the investigation of how we understand mental health and the coming through it um both as a reporter finding out about what we don't know and how we mistreat as well as how we treat um was hugely energizing um I mean, the bad period lasted from, it was actually publishing two books at the same time at the end of 18, I think I was publicizing uh, a couple of them and just working too hard and fueling myself on little shots of cannabis, which I shouldn't ever do, and um, loads of booze. Uh, and it, it was, I was lying to my partner and cheating and I was a, a real mess really, and I had been for quite a long time. Um, and you're kind of drawing on a balance that's empty in the end. Um, and so you break down. And what's been reassuring about it was, I suppose, finding out that there was no mystery there and that a lot of the myths about mental health, like there's a line between the mad and the sane or there's a chemical imbalance. 
all turn out to be nonsense. And debunking them was really energizing and fun, actually. Um, and the book has meant a year, so it came out a year ago, it's just out in paperback, of having conversations about it um, and working with all kinds of people. So I did a workshop today for the NHS in Wiltshire uh, for, they call themselves AMPS, Approved Mental Health Professionals. They're the people who section people. Um, and I've done workshops with psychiatrists and early intervention teams for psychosis. Um, and it's even mental health pharmacists, as well as the sufferers and their families who you meet doing festivals uh, and people who just get in touch. Uh, and I've never had a reaction to a book like it, um, just in terms of impact rather than sales, perhaps, um, because it came out in the middle of lockdown. But uh, I'm proud of it. And so is Chateau, uh, who published it. Um, we think it was worth doing and it, and it was a lifesaver for me and it led to really interesting conversations with my family you know we Rebecca and I had conversations which we couldn't have had before and we were very honest and very caring um and we decided to consciously decouple so uh she, although I think of her as my partner she's my partner in parenting now and she has a, a, a newer relationship um and I bought the house next door for her and, and for Aubrey our son and we see each other most days uh and it's ace. So it was a bit of a happy ever after that one, although I didn't see that coming when I was in a mental hospital. It does feel urgent, this book, when I read it. And 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 I wondered if it was this kind of calling as well, a calling to make an impact, or was that incidental? I got really um, worked up about how we mistreat mental health i mean so the problem is that we have a theory which is a fine theory which is that if you're on antidepressants the mildest form of antidepressant you shouldn't be unless you're also receiving therapy and of course the nhs can't provide that because of the sheer weight of numbers and so we split from theory into practice which is we dole these things out like sweets um and they do cause a chemical imbalance you know and then when you move to the heavier end i.e psychosis schizophrenia uh delusions we prescribed by trial and error as the only psychiatrist who was dead straight with me was the one who wasn't responsible for me and he gave he had an hour and a half to talk to me instead of 15 minutes you know and it became clear that they don't know how these things work any better than we do uh, and that the whole thing is a treatment of symptoms rather than causes so the difference you know between the wealthy and the not wealthy is that we can afford so we the few fortunate can afford to get private therapy and actually even that's hard now because they're under such demand um but i went, had a brilliant therapist and she changed my life um we did emdr eye movement uh, reprocessing and desensitization and it was absolutely fantastic um you so it, you called it um Rachel, that it was one of the most astonishing journeys of a life in travel Perhaps yeah it really was yeah she takes you back into your moments of childhood trauma and you disinter them and you enter into the scenes not re, re not re-traumatizing yourself so much as um entering into them as you are now with the question what would you say to your little self then uh and it's really um cathartic in in the fullest possible sense and it showed me the roots of what she termed risk-taking behaviours, and which I thought of as basically being a fundamentally flawed asshole. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, how, to, how you address those. Um, and she's also very hot on being truthful with yourself. What do you really need? I mean, my next book is about men and the role of men, or, if you know, the being of men, I suppose. And we have a real problem being clear with ourselves about what we actually, what our needs really are. 
um, society and our own uh, absurd patriarchy, I think, has dented and, and misdefined us. And I, we don't have conversations that, like, my women friends will have. Somebody will post on Facebook, you know, went out with the girls last night, talked Phil for three hours, it was brilliant. None of my male friends would do that. We're much more um, locked in secrecy. I think we all think we're odd. Uh, so I'm, that's what I'm having a go at next. Uh, so it's another kind of a journey, I suppose. Happy to hear another book is coming out. Um, it, it does seem that language is so critical to the healing process. And, and of course, you're a brilliant writer, you're articulate. I think about the rest of us who can't necessarily reflect or express ourselves as well as you can and what hope do they have well i most people are, are very expressive and can express themselves everywhere a bit as well as i can they have less practice and um less permission you know we you and i are both given a forum where we're invited and indeed paid to think on paper and speak aloud and investigate our own experiences and most people don't get that and a lot of people we don't teach children in school really to stand up and be confident and face a class when i taught in italy it was very striking that they do because they have to do catholic catechism so right from an early age they've got no problem facing an audience and of course it's actually really fun and therapeutic but lots of british people certainly regard it as a terrifying chore uh, and so i think you know among the many things that's wrong with education that's right one clearly that's wrong and what we used to do at john moore's when i was teaching students who often often hadn't had decent teachers before was you know how to stand up and be confident about who you are fill your own space and know that your voice has validity and i, I think a, 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 one of the great problems of the terrible disparity and the inequality in britain is that a lot of people don't feel they've got a voice and that never ends well and at what point on the journey of heavy light did you decide you were going to set the story down as a book or or does everything in your world ratio become a book in a way? Sometimes I feel myself, if I don't write it down, it didn't actually happen. <laughs> Did it happen? <laughs> you don't want to think about it. Uh, well, it was, it was clear to me in the hospital after I'd taken two doses of quetiapine when my thoughts started to clear uh, and this antipsychotic medication just drained the madness out of me um, that I needed to keep a diary because, the, you know, it was extraordinarily privileged access. I needed to keep it for my own sanity as well because then I could pretend I wasn't mad so much as... A journalist who'd you know ended up in a loony bin um and then my publishers rang up i did a broadcast file for my home correspondent and they said this is a book right and i said yes yeah, sure and so it was very clear very very clear that there was a, a place for it oh i wondered how you then de dealt with the memory and the forgetting given the state you were in i don't forget much um i really don't and i can remember the whole bloody thing and um, there was hardly any gaps um no, they really weren't. That was what was strange, because I suppose madness is not, uh, it's not not you, it's still you. It's just you in a sort of waking dream. But that doesn't mean you can't remember it. It's a lot easier to remember than real dreams. So no, um, in fact, a lot of it happened here in this flat. Uh, and the weird thing is I can see it all, but it doesn't feel like the same space. I mean, partly it's not. It's got a lot of my dad's things in it now because he died in 2019. I've got all his books and his shelves. But um, it feels like it was a just like you would recall a, a, a really significant journey. That's what it feels like looking back on a journey that, that made an impact. So not necessarily copious note-taking? No, I did keep a diary through the hospital. And then I did sort of, I tend to write quite a bit. I do diaries more now, um, you know, if things are bad or, or it's tough or anything. 
Um, I mean, but that's again this feeling of being given a voice, you know, being given a play, a, a, a platform, and it is actually being given a voice. Um, the feeling that, that, that it's all material. If I were a novelist, I would be writing a great many novels, but because I'm not, um, I, you know, I don't even have to make it up. I just try and get it down like you do. As, well, you're also a novelist, but as accurately as I can. You ask one of your good friends if you made any sense as you were spiralling. It was Zaf, and you said um, that he said to you that you didn't want to talk about home. You were travelling, and perhaps that's what all the travelling was about, in the car and in Running away. a few yeah. settle. I mean, you, yeah. The fact that you wrote that in the book, Horatio, shows that it was an important comment. Yes, it, I didn't want to talk about home. I didn't. I was in permanent denial. So that's one of the um, symptoms of kind of the manic fugue state is that you refuse to countenance there can be anything wrong with you. Uh, and I got very good at just brushing that aside. I mean, good as far as I was concerned. Um, and yeah, I did want to keep moving. Uh, yes, that, that all makes sense. You talk about two elements as healing forces, which underrated by some in the community of um, mental health. So one is community and two, nature. And by chance, for many, the pandemic has woken in us something um, about those two nations, the people who matter around us and the great outdoors. Do you think we're, we're therefore going to be better off then? We're not worse off for knowing that we all have mental health needs and that the, even a walk can help to supply them. We're definitely better off for everybody knowing that. And it's pretty well cross-class. The difference is that, you know, a lot of people, there was an awful statistic that um, there was a whole section of the population in Britain that didn't think that art galleries or National Trust properties were for them. Like, for some reason by uh, exclusion, essentially, from an early age, they didn't feel that these things were for them and that they'd be full of middle-class people who'd look down on them or something. And it's such a damning indictment of a society. Um, so we are better off. The pandemic has really helped people be honest about their needs. And, it's, and it's readjusted, I hope, the balance between employer and employee in favor of the employee, which is where it always should have been. Um, we, we are more able to say no. Uh, and, you know, with COVID, you can always say, I'm not coming in. I've got it. Um, although obviously that would be wrong if you didn't have it. But um, I do think there's a sea change. Um, talking to mental health professionals today, um, they're much more willing to try things, to be less hidebound, because mental health is so frightening that what happens is the system defaults to its safe place, which is drug them just drug them and you can see the consequence um with people on every street pretty well who are taking antidepressants and most of them won't need them you know uh, if you distinguish yourself so it's it's not that you have you're not your anxiety you're not your insomnia you're not your depression these are hard countries that you're traveling through what you need is someone or maybe more than one person to help you do something about that and with the right intervention, so it happened to me last summer, a friend of mine was about to go on antidepressants and th their life wasn't very good. And so we talked about their life and what was wrong with it. And we decided that they were going to go wild swimming every day. It was lovely summer outside and try doing things. They had money and see how that went. And sure enough, two weeks later, they decided they weren't going to take antidepressants because they didn't need them. And of course, some people do, uh, you know, they are help. But the, the thing is, all of these treatments address the symptoms and not the causes. 
And that's a crucial difference. And until we have a system which routinely says, right, what has happened to you? We won't make progress. And in 100 years, we actually haven't made progress. If you look at the outcomes for long term or for psychosis or trauma, they're not better than they were a century ago, which is insane, given the amount of money, for example, the pharmaceutical industry has generated. So these we have these wonderful tools for crisis, which are pills, but everything else, you know, we need to have a minimal medication, maximum social prescribing um, and maximum openness and non-stigma policy because a lot of people experience the stigma as worse than the condition um, which is awful and there's a real disjunct between men in suits with mercedes who hand these things out uh, and go home and the people who take them and the people who take them are heroes and i'm not anti-medication and i'm incredibly pro the courage of people who take stuff that that does have horrible side effects that actively harms you physiologically but they do it for often for their relatives or their family, you know, they'll be doing it for a good reason. And that's real courage. I didn't actually have that courage. I stopped taking my pills very early on. So where would you like to see the change happening, Rishi? Is it education uh, at school, the feeling that things aren't hopeless, that um, you're, it's not about um, either get rich or hit the breadline and the food bank, that there are things of more worth than money, that we can't be measured by Instagram followers. Um, at the moment, I've got a friend who's a young teacher starting out who says the entire system is busted because she's trying to educate kids on TikTok, you know, who are completely obsessed with the 30 second video or whatever, how to sustain their attention over a five act Shakespeare play. When she tries to do it innovatively, she gets stamped on and says, no, the exam board require they do a line by line reading. These kids are completely missing Shakespeare. It's one example. But talking to teachers and knowing something of the profession myself, it's absolutely widespread. If we don't put more money into the training and qualification of really good teachers, we're not going to get happy human beings. We're going to get disempowered people and disempowerment uh, leads and alienation leads to mental health crises. At the same time, the other end of the scale, go to Cambridge, uh, the most wealthy, often the best educated children in the world, loads of them particularly on english like all of them will end up with mental health issues so you've got to say to them at the beginning right this is not just a journey into literature this is also a journey about learning yourself and that what is not about to happen to you is you're not going to have three years of anxiety sleeplessness and not feeling as good as everybody else because we're going to talk about it from day one and we're going to travel together so um a lot of the reason i think our political class is so hopeless um is because they really haven't had an idea not an interesting or change-worthy idea since austerity, which was a disaster. At least it was a Tory idea. They haven't had another one since. They are uh, privileged um, sort of products of an, of an old system which has no relevance whatsoever in the world today. And therefore, I look at their hopeless attempts to govern us um, with pity as much as disgust. Um, and what we need, really, is a new and much more honest generation coming through who won't pretend they have the answers when they don't and he'll be prepared to seek them you know, in a collegiate fashion. It's giving people agency over their own lives that is absolutely key. And without that, and if it doesn't start at school, from then on, it's a repair job. And is that what maybe you accomplished yourself, Horatio, through this very difficult journey? I mean, you, you said that the journey and the diagnosis felt like being a new citizen in a new country. Yeah, well, as, a, as somebody who's been sectioned, I now get a voice in the mental health thing, you know, because I can talk as a service user to people who haven't really had any contact with 
uh, articulate service users because they tend to medicate them into inarticulacy or the person gets better and goes. And so it's really interesting to be a journalist and a former lunatic. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it does give me a place to stand, I suppose. Um, but more and more, because like you, I'm a traveller and a communicator and because I listen, you know, I hear really good ideas and hopeful enterprises across the spectrum, but just never from the political class. So I see my role as, you know, communicating, like, here's a good idea I heard, and then try and tell that to somebody who might be able to do something about it. You know, that's why I like writing for the Financial Times, for example, or, you know, newspapers. I write for the Daily Mail. Anyone who has an impact uh, who can reach people, that's where we need these good ideas to start travelling. To get policy to change. Yes. So after you were discharged, you described those early days as delicate and... And you said you were out of practice at being alone in one place. I'm going to quote from the book here. This is what you wrote. The solitude I know is the solitude of travel, which comes with the turn and change of the world, the pull of the journey and the company of other travellers. To be solitary in one place is nothing like that. So there's a comparison and there's not a comparison. Uh, to be alone on the road, though, Horatio, how is that for you? How is that? Is that how you best like to travel? Um, no, I mean, I... I best like to travel with my with my ex and my boy. We went. I took them skiing two weeks ago. We all shared one bedroom, uh, and, and her partner don't mind because I slept in what the maid who cleaned the room thought was Aubrey's bed. So every morning there would be Aubrey's toys on my single bed in the corner of the room. <laughs> and we had a fantastic time. We had a ball. Um, so that's my favourite form of travel. But that's really holiday. Um, no, I mean, I, I suspect again, like you, Michelle, I really do love uh, to go alone or with, you know, a photographer that I really like who you can give it, get enough space from. Um, and that's just, or a guide that, who's marvellous. But I do like a long, a long solitary journey. Of course, it's such fun. And your senses are peeled back because we're both parents. So you're not looking out for some of the kids. You can look at what's going on more, more closely uh, and engage people. Um, and I absolutely relish it. Um, and I didn't have much practice at being alone. I had been with Rebecca for 13 years. And so when, so we separated formally in March, but we didn't actually move out. We lived as housemates until Christmas. And then when I moved apart from her, that was hard. You know, it was hard. I was like, Christ, why am I even bothering to go to the supermarket if I'm buying all these organic vegetables, if I'm not cooking for Rebecca and be Like, what am I for? Um, and it's taken a while to... I remember what, what I'm for, but also um, I still go for them quite a lot. So, um, yeah, it's it's tricky, isn't it? It's funny. I remember moving to Palermo uh, after I'd left the BBC and it was just joyous and it becomes joyous. Your own company becomes joyous. My father said he hated loneliness and loved solitude in equal measure. Um, I get that. But I think loneliness is probably a lot easier now, you know, that we've got Netflix and social media. In, in a single swallow, you get behind the wheel of a car to drive from Kimberley to Bloemfontein. It's not a very long journey, but it, um, I really loved reading about that, how you felt tiny and inconsequential in the car. So building on what you've just said, Horatio, this is what I wanted to quote. I had nothing to be concerned with, no obligations to fulfil. I felt a strange mixture of freedom and pointlessness. The self-containment <laughs> of solitary travellers gives you an otherworldly off to one side lightness of being you have not the slightest bearing on events you cannot even converse about the business of the day supposing you've heard about it on the radio you do not matter the irrelevance of the traveler your absence of, of responsibility most of the time for anything but yourself is a strange condition you might as well be 
a ghost. Mm. Um, I want That's to all right. I quite like that. that. <laughs> I put that in a locket and hang it around my neck. We can stop it a bit, but I think it'll do. It'll <laughs> do. I, yeah. Is that what you think some of us clamour for? Yeah, I guess so. I got the same thing on the container ships, you know, that sense that you didn't matter, that you were gone and there was nothing you could do about the land or anything that might happen there. You were irrelevant. And not traveling with a smartphone, um, not owning one, means that when I go, I, you know, I am pretty well unreachable unless somebody direct dials my number. Uh, and that's good. Um, that's really good. You know, how else do you enter into the place that you are and do your job, which is, after all, to be a visitor from outer space? And there's been a lot of uh, agonizing about people who sound like me and look like me, you know, dominating travel for such a long time. Thank God we don't anymore, at least not in terms of quality. Um, but it doesn't really matter, I don't think, um, because in the end, your job is, you know, the, one of my favourite questions from last year was from an excellent child called Reese. He's not, he's a youth. Um, and Reese's question was, he's from Manchester, isn't travel writing just going around the world othering people? And I thought, that's very good. And I said, well, I think, no, we begin by othering ourselves. You know, I don't turn up saying you lot are weird. I turn up saying I'm weird, um, you know, can I, what's it like to be you, is more, is more my approach. Um, so I think it's still a valuable thing, no matter, you know, what, you obviously one is aware of one's own privilege, um, but I, you know, good travel writers have always been aware of that. I might just plagiarise that line, or is you? <laughs> Which, othering ourselves. <laughs> well, it does attract freaks and weirdos, doesn't it, Michelle? Like, it's an amazing profession for when you look at the people who do it. They look at it, people like you and Kapka, Kasabova. I mean, just extraordinary, extraordinary minds and, and individuals, really. Yeah, it's a great landscape, though. I mean, all that amounts to a lot of humility, I would say, which is exactly what you kind of need in spades. But there's also something about anonymity, isn't there? Because the people you meet are strangers and they don't have your backstory. Yeah. Yeah. Which is why I think dancing is really useful because if, as soon as you dance, they're like, oh, he's not a threat. He's an idiot. Um, at least in my case. Um, yes, that's right. That is right. Um, and it, of course, it's tremendously, uh, it's a pity we don't all feel like travel writers all the time because you are empowered because in the end, in some degree, what happens to you matters in a little way. So it's a tiny bit like being a sort of little celebrity in your own life, but an anonymous one. Um, and you will write the story of that night, the night that nobody else thought mattered. And with any luck, you know, you'll see things in it that do matter. And that's the story that you'll tell. And then as you pointed out earlier, there's a stigma attached to some of our backstories, right? And taboo and prejudice. So you can invent yourself perhaps too. Yeah, I don't have to tend to make it up. Um, I, I always find myself drawing like two triangles with a rhombus on left-hand side of the lower one. You know, it's an upside-down triangle, and it's it's the it's the UK really quickly. Uh, you can do it in a, like that, 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 that. And then I, the rhombus on the side is Wales, and then I draw a line to it. I was like, what, you know? And then you and they're like, okay, right. And then I say it's basically mountains and sheep, and that's where I'm from, uh, and that helps i suppose um people like to locate you even in a strange way um although it can be quite sinister there was an amazing moment in the congo when i met the american embassy builders and one of them was introducing me to the other one and he said this is a ratio he's a writer he's a journalist and he knows about the general and or the colonel and the colonel was a um an architect responsible for the design of american embassies around the world 
And I thought, wow, the triangulation and the transmission of information of threat there was absolutely immaculate. Uh, and of course, you know, I think it's Joan Didion who says a journalist is always selling someone out. And I don't, I don't agree with that. Um, not quite. I see the point. In that same book, you quote something Rebecca said, which is, I only really feel at home when I'm a stranger. I think a lot of us feel like that. Yes. And Rebecca's very grounded. You know, she's from Rochdale. She's got a huge clan family. They're a big, and they go back. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, it's an amazing structure, the North, in that family way, and though it's simply that the South isn't. Um, and yet, you know, she was <laughs> selling timeshare for gangsters in Portugal by the time she was 17 or 16 and a half. And then she went to live in Taiwan and stuff. And, and we lived in Italy together. And she is utterly at home in those places. And so am I. I would much rather be abroad. And I can see a lot of things to love in Britain, but I feel happier abroad. I do. Given where you are at this point, Horatia, because I didn't know that before we got on, but, you know, you've got options. There's the swallow road, as you called it, in a single swallow, with the mm. disregard of space and direction. Mm. Or you've got security and community and love and friendship and and it is seductive to live again in that what you call the wonderful rhythm of change the unfamiliarity of every bed and the novelty of every morning mm. everything in your rucksack and mm. and that completeness that lightness that self-sufficiency yeah. and irresponsibility do you long for that um, no, I look forward to it. You know, I, I, it's coming again. And every time it does, um, so I reckon I probably do four or five trips a year. Um, it's wonderful, you know, thank God, really. And at the same time, just going down to see my mum, like the, when, because Wales shut its border, which was a horrible fright for me, because um, I've always thought the Anglo-Welsh border, I, I hate borders, was the ideal one. And then, of course, during COVID, they quite rightly shut it to keep Johnson's lunacy out um, and run their own affairs. And so I couldn't see my mother for about a year. <laughs> whatever it was. And by the time I crossed, like driving into Wales after all that time away was the, the most resonant journey. Uh, it really was. I was going to a foreign country, the one I'd grown up in, uh, from the one I lived in, which also seemed foreign. Um, so that was marvellous. Um, but no, I mean, my boy's nine. And so he needs me uh, in his life daily or, you know, every two days minimum, I think. And, uh, and as long as I do that, which I love to do, then nobody minds if I have to bugger off for two weeks. Just a few weeks then, here and there. Well, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, writing about men is obviously. I will. I will there will. There will be journeys involved, but really, it's 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 another way of staying here. A lot of that that you tackle in some of the books you've written as well. They've always been a bit of a subject, yeah. Because my dad, I think, who was wonderful, but I didn't see enough of him, so I became fascinated and mystified by them at an early age. So tell me how you wrote three books in 2017. That's my greatest mystery. Forget about men. Mm -hmm. I suspect they'd all been written, like, probably one... So it was probably, like, Bach, Icebreaker, and maybe uh, a child, children's book. So the trick is they're all really short. Um, children's book particularly short. Bach was very short, and Icebreaker wasn't very long. Or maybe one of them was a winter journal. Um, so they're not... I, I'm, Michelle, I'm trying to write less. And as one of the better editors I've ever worked for, you'll understand that less is more. Um and also working for small presses. So two of those would be you know, smaller publishers and, and one would be Chateau. Um, and that just means that you if, you, if you publish a children's book with a small press in Wales, you're not going to do a great deal of publicity. They haven't got that kind of reach. So it's not that hard um, to publicize it. 
Um, and I've had, I, you know, I've been lucky with very good publicists who organise your life. And since I had a breakdown, people sweetly say, we want to take care of your welfare during this publicity tour. And of course they don't, but that's my fault because I never say no if I can avoid it. Um, yeah, but it was too much. And I, I do try and, because it doesn't leave space for the things that really matter, like your family, really, you know. Well, thanks for that top tip. I'll just um, write short. <laughs> write short, it works. Michelle. Yeah. I'm happy to hear there's another book in your thing, but given your multiple strands of writing, is there more than one? Have you hatching the one after? I do have a couple of ideas. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I do, I do want to, um, to go on the road again. Definitely. I've got very interested in Van Gogh, and I think there's a small book I want to write about him because we've both been crazy, and I'm very interested in his way of seeing. Uh, and also the South. So Rebecca and I and Aubrey lived in Marseille during one of the lockdowns. Um, we just moved because they were he was in online school and so was she and I was writing. And that, that I love the, that they call it the blue coast, you know, because the air is so clear because the Mistral blows it clear and it glitters um, all the way up to Arles where he was. Um, and there's definitely something I'd like to do there. Something about seeing and, you know, the filters of perception. So is ecstatic. He's a very good writer. And um, when, in one of his letters, he refers to what he calls the love of many things. And that's the title. So I've got a title. <laughs> love it. Um, mm. Well, I'm glad there's two on the way. But, um, well, I haven't done anything about the other one, but it's it's sitting there as a thought. Okay. You've got a title. What about you? Oh, that's kind of you to ask. I'm in edit right now with a book called Two Friends. So, mm. so I'm thinking... What's Two Friends? Two Friends is semi-memoir, semi-speculative, that narrative non-fiction genre that editors and agents talk about, which is slightly making it up with a little bit of truth, which is kind of fiction, isn't it? Sounds like it. But it starts at 9-11. It's co-authored, so um, I know that's... Interesting. ...with a woman... How's that going for your poor co-author? I hope they're very, very good. Um, the writing has been really productive, harmonious, excellent, really, overall. We kind of surprised ourselves at how, you know, disciplined, didn't let each other down, kind of meet each other on these Zooms at particular times, time being such a precious commodity. But I have yeah. to say the edit, that is... <laughs> Not friends anymore, then. <laughs> <laughs> two, two friends who are kind of in crisis. I think. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, have you known each other for a long time? Since almost the moment the book begins, which is in 9-11, and, and then and we speculate, uh, we're not sure, actually, at the moment. It's kind of going between 5 and 15 years into the future, given that the book is finished, and we're, that's the kind of edit. You can see what an overhaul it is. But but like you, I've kind of got another on the go, at least in my head, not on paper What's yet. That? What's that? That is me, um, kind of solitary writing. Ooh. And that is walking into a bar, probably near, near your Congo, Mm. And seeing all that that kind of mix of mercenary and missionary and guerrilla and soldier and um, oh, this sounds NGO good. worker and yeah and and that kind of that and then then the, the woman walking in is a foreign correspondent you know a kind of freelance a gigger like I really want her to be this freelance gigger because you are fancy free but rootless gigger's a good title but then so is woman walks into a bar. <laughs> isn't it that top tip you're like will you get the title before you get the book so i'll remember that sometimes um, yeah. no, oh that sounds great 
Yeah, it's so like nice. Sunday by the pool in Kigali. Yeah, it's kind of starting in Goma, but yeah, I think it might go to Kinshasa for a bit. Maybe end in Kigali. Maybe there were all these refugees. Difficult about see, see, uh, so I'm the white guy, and I didn't have the guts. I tried to go to Kinshasa. I was in Brazzaville, and they go, "No, Rachel, you can't." And I said, "Why not?" And they said, "Because we can't come with you, and you will get fucking eaten. <laughs> You're just hopeless." So they wouldn't let me go, and I was delighted not to go. But of course, you went. Well, maybe I'll meet you in the bar. In my you're just so, I gotta meet you in a bar, Michelle. But yeah, yeah you're, you're so much tougher than I am. Yeah, I can't wait to read it. They both sound ace. Did you know that Two Friends is also the title of a short story by Maupassant? Thank you for that. I will look it up. One of his best. Two friends decide to go fishing during it's actually very relevant during the German Prussian siege of Paris. It's absolutely brilliant and very, very short. You should have a look. Glad you told me that. Um, yeah. two, two friends who are men. Yeah, they are. Okay, that's great. So we will be the antidote. Yeah, um, you will. Horatio Claire, you are a brilliant man. Thank you for joining me on The Wandering Book Collector. Such a pleasure, anytime. And my thanks to the supporters of this podcast, Abercrombie and Kent, to me, and Ultimate Library. Goodbye. <laughs>